Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, March 1st. So you're frustrated about gridlock and democracy in Congress these days, right? How many days do we talk about on that on this show? The Senate is permanently stuck because of the filibuster in Joe Manchin and the fact that small conservative states get the same two senators as New York and California. Ugh. In fact, the Brookings Institution says California alone, listen to this stat, California alone has the same population as the 21 smallest states combined. But California gets two senators, those smaller states get 42. So Congress needs reform, right? Well, yes. My first guest today is one of the country's leading thinkers on democracy, and she has a Washington Post op-ed that proposes one way to reform Congress. But here's the surprise. It's not about changing the Senate. It's about changing the House. Danielle Allen is a professor of political philosophy, ethics, and public policy at Harvard. She is former chair of the Mellon Foundation and the Pulitzer Prize Board, the author of books including Democracy in the Time of Coronavirus, and a Washington Post columnist, where her latest piece is called The House Was Supposed to Grow with Population. It didn't. Let's fix that. I'll say that again. The House was supposed to grow with population. It didn't. Let's fix that. It's part of a series in which she's exploring ways to stop our country from pulling apart with ways to come together. I'm so glad we have Danielle Allen on the show for the first time now with her important work. Professor Allen, thanks so much for coming on with us. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much, Brian. Glad to be here with you. The House of Representatives. When the country was founded, you remind us, each house district had around 34,000 people. How many are in each house district today? Well, we're up to about 762,000 people per district. Wow. So really phenomenal change. And the number of House members used to grow with the size of the national population? When and why did that stop? That's right. Every 10 years with a new census, the House would be reapportioned and there would be an increase in the number of members of the House. That stopped in 1929. There was an act at that time, the Permanent Apportionment Act. There had been a lot of debate about challenges. People were worried about the size of the building. They were worried about just, can you still do business with more representatives? A lot of different issues, questions of geographical allocations and the like. But that act in 1929 set up a process where there's a sort of de facto expected number of 435. The Census Bureau has a job of after we take the census, they just go back and say, okay, well now here's how we'll allocate 435. Technically Congress could change that number, but it hasn't done so for a century. So for a century, our Congress has been capped at this 435 level. So the question is, why does this matter to democracy and why does this matter to how the country is pulling apart? It's really a deep, deep question. And, and I'm so glad you've made space for this conversation, too. I want to say, Brian, and, and thank you as well for acknowledging how frustrated we all are with Congress. That's just true. You know, we hear that everywhere. So the co Congress is the first branch. And at the end of the day, the House of Representatives 
is the body that is supposed to be closest to the people. There are a couple of critical design principles that the drafters of the Constitution used. One was to meld popular sovereignty, which the House represented, with a certain kind of commitment to stability, which the Senate represented. But the House was also supposed to be elastic and dynamic, change and shift with the population. So when California grows, when Texas, when Florida grow, they should get more representation. That hasn't happened for the last century. As a result, again, you know, representatives are too far from their constituents. That reduces their responsiveness. It also means there's a sort of information vacuum. There's not enough local connection to representatives. So people take in their political news from national sources that really feels and feeds in the sort of spiral of sort of misinformation that can affect elections. If we can bring our representatives back closer to the people, we can address that responsiveness question. We can address that proximity to the people, start to fill in some of those information vacuums as well and clean up the information ecosystem. I don't see where you've written a similar article on the Senate, maybe just not yet, but why would expanding the House do more to make our democracy more representative than reforming or even abolishing the Senate with that huge overweight it gives to small conservative rural states that we more often talk about? Well, it's really important to remember that when you're trying to build a system of free self-government, it should be based on the concept of popular sovereignty, principles of more majority elections and the like, but you do also need minority protecting mechanisms and of all kinds, right? So we definitely talk about minority protecting mechanisms with regard to, for instance, African-Americans and the right to vote, but it's not crazy to have minority protecting mechanisms for rural communities as well. In fact, that sort of was the glue that held the whole thing together was that there was a blend of majoritarian principles and minority protecting principles. So the problem we have is that the blend has gotten way out of whack way too much emphasis on the minority protecting mechanisms and we need to rebalance. So growing Congress is one part of rebalancing. Here's a piece of the good news. When you grow Congress, you're also rebalancing the electoral college. So the number of people who are in the House and Senate combined flows through to the number of electors. So when we grow the House, you actually end up with an electoral college that's not out of whack in the way that it currently is. Yeah, I was just going to ask about the Electoral College implications. But again, the way we usually talk about that is that the number of electors from each state, since it's the number of senators plus the number of House members, that's how you get to 538, the number of senators plus the number of House members, it's those two senators from tiny states that we usually say disconnect the Electoral College from the popular vote. You're saying having more House seats in the Electoral College would also make it more democratic. That's exactly right, Brian. No, you've you've got it. So the thing is, what's happening right now is that the House is over time becoming like the Senate, okay? (laughs) So we certainly don't need two Senates. Mm. I won't tackle the Senate question right now, but I can tell you for sure we only need one Senate. And (laughs) if we're going to have one Senate, then we definitely need a House that is growing with the population and making those adjustments in relationship to demography. One of your other recent columns on our national pulling apart is about social media resulting in so much contact between people. You actually say the founders of the country saw one part of a successful democracy, successful getting along, as coming through the distance people had from each other. Can you explain that? Sure. It's a little counterintuitive, but... um, you know, we right now, we we really feel that we're in this incredibly polarized time, and we are, and even with parts of our society being not just polarized, but radicalized. So it's a really hot and fraught political time. 
Now, this was true as well at the time of drafting of the Constitution. So they had all kinds of problems with factionalism, as they called it. Congress was dysfunctional. They couldn't get a quorum. They couldn't deal with the budget, with the debt issues and the like. So that was really those kinds of problems motivated them in drafting the Constitution. And they thought the Constitution, its design was a solution to that problem of faction. James Madison is the person who articulated the solution best. He did it in one of his essays that he published defending the Constitution. They're called the Federalist Papers. In Federalist 10, the 10th essay, he explains how the mechanism was supposed to solve the problem of faction. It has two parts to the solution. We tend to focus on the first part. The first idea was that if it's a representative democracy, you'll elect people who will filter opinion and synthesize opinion and give us a kind of moderated synthesizing steering direction for the polity. But there was a second part to the solution, and this is what you're asking about. Mm -hmm. The second part was it would be a broad republic. It would be geographically broad, dispersed. People would be spread out. The result would be that people with extreme views, the only way they would be able to get them into the public sphere would be through representatives. The very breadth of the country would make it hard for the worst kinds of factions to form because people with extreme views wouldn't find each other and be able to coordinate. Now, that is obviously no longer the circumstance that operates for us. People can easily find each other. Social media has sort of taken that principle of geographic dispersal out from underneath us. So we do really have to rethink the question of how can representation function so that we can actually make sure that extreme field views are not co-opting or capturing the process, that we do have basically filters in place and so forth. Interesting. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dan Yell Allen, thinker about democracy at Harvard and a Washington Post columnist. She's got a column proposing that one of the solutions to the country pulling apart is to expand the House of Representatives. When the country was founded, there were only 34,000 people per House district. Now there are over 700,000 per House district. But, Danielle, I could make a case that more and smaller House districts add fuel to the pulling apart because each district would have an even narrower specific population interest than it does now, that it's the statewide elections for Senate where the candidates actually have to build coalitions between city and suburban and rural voters, and so senators tend to be more moderate than members of the House. Or do you think that's wrong? Well, I do think that there are a number of different things that we actually need to do together at the same time. So growing the House is one really important reform that we need. I also think we need some changes to our electoral system. So for example, I'm a real supporter for ranked choice voting. I know New York has used that recently. So people have direct experience of what ranked choice voting is like. That is an electoral mechanism that requires people to build up support from more than 50% of voters, either it's their first choice or their second choice or their third choice. That requires candidates to campaign in ways that are about building coalitions. It's not about dividing up the electorate and just like trying to grab the biggest slice of what's been divided. So yes, we need to grow the house so that we can get representatives back closer to the people they represent, make sure they're more responsive to their constituents, more directly accountable to the people. But I think we also need to change how they get elected so that their incentives pull in the direction of coalition building. Yeah, interesting. One reason that you cite for having more House members that's really interesting to me is smaller districts would mean less expensive campaigns. So candidates would be less dependent on moneyed interest. Now, that's got to be good for democracy. You want to go into that a little bit? 
There you go. So I started out by saying that there were a set of design principles that the people who drafted the Constitution used for thinking about its pieces and parts. And I mentioned popular sovereignty and then the balance with the notion of stability that the Senate represented. But another critical design principle was what was called due dependence on the people. You know, are people duly dependent on ordinary voters? Are, are politicians duly dependent? And the idea here is that you don't want your politicians captured by special interests, by rich donors and the like. You want them to be responsible to and accountable to the broad electorate. So yes, I mean, to make the districts smaller again and to make them easier to campaign in, reduce the costs and so forth, does change the, the impact of money in politics. Again, I don't think it's the only thing we should do about money in politics, but I do think it is very beneficial. Yeah, although why wouldn't the special interest money, the really big special interest money, the really corrupting special interest money pour into competitive districts anyway, that really big and corrupting set of special interests like maybe the fossil fuels lobby or the real estate lobby aren't short of money to spread around, are they? Well, it's certainly true that in any competitive race, if there's something that hangs really finely in the balance, you would see that pouring in. And so again, as I said, I think that there are other reforms we also need around campaign finance. But by the same token, if you've got more districts, then there's also, you know, there are going to be fewer places in which those interests can play. That will give you more elected representatives who are truly dependent on the people, again, not on those big moneyed interests. And that should enable more problem solving, more flexibility in terms of coalitional dynamics and things like that in the House. If we did expand the House of Representatives, would that benefit either party if we followed that blueprint? Because you know the way these things play out. Things might be actually better for democracy on paper, but then they would benefit one party or the other in real life, at least at the moment, and so the other party objects. Like when we talk about making D.C. a state or Puerto Rico a state, there might be really good reasons for those things, but the Republicans howl because those are Democratic areas. What about expanding the House? That's right. I mean, that is always one of the challenges with thinking about how we renovate our democracy is where will we get stuck on the partisan politics of changing things. This reform is a really interesting one because modeling suggests that it is not clear which party it would benefit. It would not particularly benefit one or the other. So it would add a kind of dynamism. It would change up the basic sort of you know, equilibrium of our politics, but without actually handing favor to one side or the other. So and if you stop and think about it, it makes sense, right? Because the four biggest states in the country are California, New York, Texas, and Florida. So if you just keep that in mind, it sort of gives you a sense of the way in which the shifting and the adjustments that would come with growing Congress, really, you know, you'd see more representation in two blue states and two red states, for instance. Oh, yeah. Well, we're out of time, but I want to say that I think we've just scratched the surface of your interest in finding solutions to the pulling apart of your country, of our country. I'm really interested, for example, in one of your articles uh, that we didn't get to touch on today, where you grapple with how we should all listen to the emotional truths of people politically different from ourselves, whoever we are. And I think our listeners are deeply interested in this subject. So I hope you'll come back and we can keep exploring more solutions. I think it's fantastic that you're devoting this year in your Washington Post column to the subject. Thanks so much, Brian. I'll be happy to join you anytime. 
Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.